President Biden and Speaker Pelosi are planning to increase the national minimum wage. Did you know that a woman is responsible for our national minimum wage? That her bold modern labor programs caused a constitutional court packing crisis, and that this woman was the subject of impeachment inquiries in Congress. Hey there, news peelers! Today's Saturday, February twenty, twenty twenty-one. This is the first episode of a two-part series on America's minimum wage, and this is Adele with Appeal News. I hope you will enjoy this podcast, and if you do, please consider sponsoring the show for a small monthly amount, which can be canceled any time. Start your sponsorship by clicking the support link right here in the description for this episode, or click the support link. In our podcast profile, once a week we select a news item and peel the history behind it. And oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of these stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink. Or both, and let's get into it. The dream of doubling the national minimum wage from seven dollars and twenty-five cents an hour to fifteen dollars is turning out to be a bit of a pickle for Democrats. Forget about Republican opposition to it. The Democrats can't even rally behind the idea amongst themselves. Originally. Speaker Pelosi planned to insert the minimum wage bill in the 1.9 trillion dollar pandemic aid package, but Democratic senators, namely Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, opposed that plan. So Ms. Pelosi announced that instead of this pandemic package, the minimum wage bill will be included in the next pandemic package. But then here's something else. Twelve Democratic senators, including the two that I just mentioned, haven't even signed on to the bill that would raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour by 2025. That Senate bill was introduced, of course, by none other than Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont, who is a stalwart of social programs and labor causes. Well. What do you think is happening to the $15 an hour minimum wage proposal now? In a town hall meeting on Tuesday, February 16th, President Biden eased up on the doubling of the minimum wage. He said, "Hey, you know, $12 or $13 an hour could work too." And now many Democrats are considering extending the timeline for minimum wage increase to beyond 2025. They're also considering giving tax relief for small businesses. To soften the blow of higher minimum wage, as the pandemic is still hurting many small businesses. Since its introduction in 1938, the national minimum wage has been raised 22 times. What we wondered is this: Was it always so difficult? So much politicking just to get to it. Well, I don't know if there was a kerfuffle every time the minimum wage was raised. 
But I can tell you this. When it was introduced in the 1930s, it caused a huge backlash. It was struck down as unconstitutional. It was labeled as anti-business. Some called it un-American, and others outright called it communist. It finally became law through twists and turns, and by battles of giant personalities of colorful Americans, who at times used saucy language that, well, make for good storytelling. Stay with me as I peel the history behind this news. Most of us take minimum wage for granted, maybe because, well, maybe because it's always been around, although that's how it feels like to us Americans of 2021, it hasn't always been so. In fact, for most of modern human history, governments and businesses have imposed maximum wages, like a wage ceiling, and minimum hours, like a floor on the number of hours that you should work, which is completely the opposite of our modern laws of minimum wage and maximum work hours. It wasn't until the 1930s that the U.S. government tried to impose a national minimum wage, which it called the living wage. The idea for a national minimum wage was urged by President Delano Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor in 1933. Now, normally, in news or in history, we hardly ever talk about a Secretary of Labor. I mean, I had to look up President Trump's and President Biden's Secretaries of Labor. I didn't know who they were. But you see, 1933 was no ordinary year. It was smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. Unemployment rose to a calamitous level of 25%, meaning that one out of every four working-age American was out of a job. By comparison, at the height of our coronavirus pandemic, Lockdown back in April 2020, unemployment peaked at 14.8%. That is 10% below the unemployment level in 1933. And we all know the story of what happened during the Great Depression. We remember from our high school days. Business bankruptcies, runs on the banks, home foreclosures, long lines of men at soup kitchens. Under such conditions, everyone knew that Roosevelt's choice of a strong labor secretary was the key to success of his administration in wrenching the country out of the tight grip of the Great Depression. And the funny thing is that the position of the Secretary of Labor was only formed 20 years ago during Woodrow Wilson's administration, and now it was a big deal for Roosevelt. Roosevelt's choice was Frances Perkins, and she was no stranger to him. When Roosevelt was New York's governor, he had appointed Perkins as New York's labor commission, which made her one of New York's most powerful state employees, as well as the highest paid employee. But Perkins' experience with labor went way back, before Roosevelt. In a book titled The Woman Behind the New Deal, Francis Perkins' biographer, Kirsten Downey, tells the story that when Perkins heard the New York governor, Al Smith, which was the New York governor before Roosevelt, 
had appointed her as a member of the Industrial Commission, she laughed. She laughed. She thought this is a joke. You see, it was February 1919 then. And as a woman, Perkins didn't even yet have the right to vote, let alone be a member of a commission. But it wasn't a joke. Governor Al Smith had appointed Perkins as one of the highest paid women in the state of New York. A woman in charge of men's labor issues as early as 1919. Her experience with labor, with destitute families, with women and children, opened her eyes to the reality of the good times of the Roaring Twenties, that the good times had not trickled down to all families, particularly the poor. So, did she jump at the chance of becoming the labor secretary? No, she did not. At first, she didn't accept the job. But when Roosevelt insisted that they meet, she gave him a list of bold programs as a condition of her acceptance. And you guessed it. Minimum wage was one of them. Other programs were those that, well, we're all familiar with today, like the 8-hour workday, 40-hour work week, child labor prohibition laws, and this and that. But at that time, these programs were hugely controversial and politically risky. FDR accepted her conditions, but then asked a discerning question That's, that was like an omen of the crisis to come. FDR asked, are these programs constitutional? Perkins' answer may surprise you. Even she doubted the constitutionality of her programs. But that little minor issue, the constitutionality of her programs, wasn't going to stop her from trying to help working American families during the Great Depression. At first, Perkins approached minimum wage by experimenting. One of her first experiments took place in California, where many people lived in deplorable conditions, low wages that starved families who lived in tent cities. It was the real-life story behind John Steinbeck's novel, the Grapes of Wrath. When Secretary Perkins' agent in California printed proclamations from the Department of Labor that set minimum wages in California's farming communities, California's governor, James Rolfe, was so infuriated that he sent FDR a message berating him about why the government's agents were stirring up communist ideas in his state of California. By the way, when I say FDR, I'm referring, of course, to President Roosevelt. Perkins was beginning to make some progress on minimum wage with businesses and states. And then Black Monday happened. On Monday 27, 1935, the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the power of the NRA. Now, don't, don't get excited. We're not talking about the National Rifle Association. The NRA was part of FDR's New Deal. It was the acronym for the National Recovery Administration. This was a huge blow to Perkins' push for a national minimum wage. And it was devastating to Roosevelt's New Deal. There's a great story that on that day, Black Monday, Joseph Kennedy, the father of the future President Kennedy was on his way to the White House to resign his position as the chairman of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. On the street as he was driving, he saw a placard that shouted the terrible news. 
the Supreme Court has struck down the NRA as unconstitutional. Knowing how much this crushed Roosevelt's spirit and killed his programs, Kennedy turned right around and drove away from the White House. He postponed his resignation for months. So, Black Monday brings us back to Roosevelt's question to Perkins two years earlier in 1933. Are your programs constitutional? How did Roosevelt know to ask that question? Because since the early 1900s, the Supreme Court was striking down progressive legislation, such as child labor laws, maximum work hours, and minimum wages. For example, in 1923, the Supreme Court had ruled against the minimum wage for women in the District of Columbia. It was irrelevant to the Supreme Court that these women in D.C. weren't earning living wages. The Supreme Court believed minimum wage and other such programs were beyond Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce and that the expansion of the powers of the federal government threatened individual liberties and property rights. On one rare occasion that the Supreme Court did uphold one of Roosevelt's and Perkins' programs, Justice James McReynolds shouted in his written words that the Constitution is dead. Now, remember his name, McReynolds, because we'll come back to him several times. But not every justice shared Justice McReynolds' conservative views. For example, Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was born in Austria and emigrated to America when he was 12 years old, believed that the Supreme Court's conservative views were a legacy of last century's economy and that the new, highly urbanized economy needed new laws for which the people of America had elected new politicians, such as President Roosevelt, to enact and to enforce. So what happened to minimum wage after Black Monday? Perkins was innovative. She embarked on a multi-pronged strategy to bring minimum wage for Americans. First, she capitalized on FDR's popularity in 1936 and made minimum wage a Democratic Party platform in the Philadelphia Presidential Nominating Convention. Interestingly, more than 70 years before Obamacare, she also pushed for national health care, <laughs> but, but that didn't fly at all. Second, she pushed through Congress a bill that required minimum wage for the labor of goods that were purchased by the federal government. Since the federal government was a big purchaser, this law applied to lots of businesses. So that was indeed a victory for her. And third, she pushed minimum wage through states mainly because the Supreme Court had been relatively more lenient towards the state's control of wages, particularly to protect the health of mothers and potential mothers. But none of this was enough. Even her state minimum wage strategy was failing because, as we reviewed earlier, most state policies pertain to women and largely excluded men. And plus, when one state would impose good minimum wage regulations, businesses just picked up shop and went across the state lines. It was clear to Perkins that only 
comprehensive federal wage policy would work. But how? How can she push through a federal minimum wage policy when the Supreme Court, an equal branch of the U.S. government, stood like an impenetrable rampart on her path? For many Americans of the 1930s, the Supreme Court justices were were the nine old men that sided with the rich. Only, if only some of these old men would step off the court's bench, right? Well, as it turns out, some of the justices did in fact want to leave the court. We know this because in 1935, the same year as the infamous Black Monday, Secretary Perkins received a very surprising private dinner invitation from guess who? Justice McReynolds. During that dinner, Justice James McReynolds intimated to Secretary Perkins that if Roosevelt guarantees a life pension for Supreme Court justices, several of the justices who were opposing the New Deal programs, including minimum wage, would in fact step down. (laughs) The delicious irony of Roosevelt's troubles with the Supreme Court is that these intractable justices that were striking down his programs had stayed on the Supreme Court bench because of Roosevelt. Because in 1933, just two years earlier, Roosevelt had cut their pensions along with reducing the salaries of other federal employees. So these justices continued working because they didn't have a pension. And as they worked, they hacked away at Roosevelt's and Perkins' programs. Now, here is Perkins at this dinner. She just heard the perfect solution to her problems from the horse's mouth. I bet she couldn't run fast enough to the White House after that dinner to deliver the great news to Roosevelt. And how do you think Roosevelt took this wonderful news? He was rather cool about it. Wait, 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 what? Yeah, Roosevelt didn't take Justice McReynolds' bait. Instead, he aimed for something bigger, more permanent, and more, well, more liable to creating a crisis. Tune into the second episode of this two-part series and listen to the surprising resolution of the Clash of Titans, which was Roosevelt versus the U.S. Supreme Court. This clash of progressives versus conservatives had one regrettable collateral damage. I'll give you a hint. It involves America's first female cabinet member. The beat and rhythm you've been hearing throughout this podcast and are hearing now is called The Success. It's by Keys of Moon Music. And the link and license for this music is provided in the descriptive text of this episode. By the way, the books that were consulted and researched for this episode are also listed there. Of course, uh, for citations to specific pages in those books, you're welcome to visit the post for this episode on our website, thepeel.news. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. 
and our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, share your thoughts with me by leaving voice messages on this podcast or direct message me on Instagram at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.